Hello and welcome to episode 169 of the Batflip Crazy Podcast, where you'll always find enthusiastic, data-driven fantasy baseball analysis and strategy. I am your host, Toby. Today is edition number 73 of Bubba and the Batflip. Bubba and I will be taking another go at our starting pitcher preview review, this time taking a look at starting pitchers going after an ADP of 200. Um, So we'll be diving into some key position battles and decision points um, after ADP of 200 and answering some listener questions. So a lot of fun, always fun to go over kind of the the uh, the end of the pitcher uh, ADP, just because there's always some really interesting uh, pitchers in there that are that are fun to talk a little bit about. So we cover that. Um, should be a lot of fun. A lot of things going on right now. Things are starting to get hopping. It's March 1st. It's March. It's the season of drafting. TGFBI just got started. Uh, for me, Tout Wars uh, just got started. The draft and hold, which is uh, really an honor to be in that. So really excited to be drafting um, in that room. Uh, yeah. So if you um, you can reach me on Twitter at batflipcrazy, you can reach Bubba on Twitter at bdntrek. Uh, let's get this party started. And welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Bubba and the Batflip, episode seventy three. Your starting pitching review part two, uh, pitchers after ADP 200 as of February 15th in the NFPC online drafts. You can find me on Twitter at BDNTrick and the Batflip portion of the podcast on Twitter at BatflipCrazy. Toby, how are we doing, man? We are doing uh, wonderful, Bubba. Today, as so many people know and have been participating, is the first day of TGFBI, which is super exciting. And then on the last show, I think we talked about that both of us were invited to Tau Wars. So my Tau Wars draft and hold uh, league started uh, this morning as well. So it's been a busy day of drafting. And by drafting, I mean waiting to draft, you know, not a, not a criticism of anybody, but just, you know, how these slow drafts are. Like, it's like, you're just waiting around and waiting around and um, ready to draft. So it's been a lot of fun though. We're getting into prime draft season so many drafts coming up. This is really, it's really nice to get into some actual drafts, you know, and, um, you know, which is super exciting. So how are you doing? I am doing well. Um, TGFBI is cranking up and like you said, and Tout Wars drafting on Tuesday morning. So it'll be fun to see how that one goes. It's a whole different, uh, whole different strategy. It's uh, kind of similar to barf, I guess, with a little twist. So it's going to be real interesting to see how that all plays out. And, um, First time it's been done, so I have a feeling some people have some really hardcore strategies, but we'll see how it goes because it's it's a mix. There's some veterans of tout, and then there's some newbies like me and Alex Fast and some others. So it'll be really interesting to see how that all plays out. But Definitely. Time will tell on that, and uh, we'll have plenty to talk about on that at a later date and time. But let's do some more player debates, ADP past ADP 200, and then we'll talk about some listener questions since we had a ton of good ones. Uh, let's kick it off with Eduardo Rodriguez, John Means, Christian Javier, and Andrew Heaney. I did more uh, larger groupings here because some are just kind of thrown together here. Erod's at pick 222, um, John Means at 224, Christian Javier at 224, and Andrew Heaney at 223 and a half, basically. So they're all sitting right next to each other, but I thought it was interesting. You got Erod, who's missed all of last season, obviously, COVID complications, very, very scary COVID complications. They said he's healthy and he's ready to throw 30 starts. So I don't know. Take that with a grain of salt, obviously. But you got Heaney, who everybody loves, Christian Javier, another young arm for Houston, and then John Means, who we've talked about before. So it's quite an interesting foursome here. How do you attack this grouping? Yeah, I mean, for me, 
for me, the really, you know, I think there's, for me, I like means a lot. I think we talked about him at the end of the last show. So I won't, I won't belabor that point, but I just really like what he was able to do really over the course of the entire um, 2020 season. He struggled early on just, I think with a little bit of health issues and then bereavement list, but then towards the end of the season with the velocity increase, the forcing fastball was lights out, which is great when you couple it with his changeup, which still has room for improvement, but is a good enough pitch. So I really like him uh, a lot, and I think he could benefit from the dead-end ball. Uh, Christian Javier, you know, not really interested in Javier. Um, if you look at the results, were were pretty good, um, but the actual underlying metrics were were not good. Um, so if you look at um, if you look at his swinging strike rate, eight point seven percent, well below league average, but somehow he managed a higher than league average um, strikeout rate. Uh, he also, um, he also didn't have a great CSW either. So it wasn't like, just like he was getting called strikes instead of swinging strikes. He just wasn't effective, but he had a 194 BABIP. He had an 86.2%, uh, strand rate. So everything went for him because he was below, below average, well below average in literally every single category. Um, and so obviously his minor league track record is a little bit stronger when it comes to strikeouts, but he also had a lot of walk issues in the minors. And so, you know, we can't think that the K percentage is going to, is going to return if we don't think the, the control issues are going to return to. So for me, he's just a total fade. Uh, Rodriguez, Erod is, is nice to see him healthy and back, you know, assuming everything looks good in the spring, he could be a, a huge, you know, boon, I think to, to owners who are to drafters who took him early on. But and and he's he was phenomenal in 2019. Obviously, he's going to be very he might be on an even more limited innings count. And so that's just something you need to be aware of where you're drafting him. I think there's a little bit of a there's a little bit of a cap on his ceiling because of that. But again, if he pitches like he's been pitching in the past, even if it's for 120 innings or whatnot, that could be really, really helpful. And then Andrew Heaney, he's just always really been a fade for me. I know the skills are always intriguing, but He's just a guy who we've been waiting now like four or five years for him to put it all together. And it's just never really happened. It's either the skills look really good, but he's getting absolutely hit around. Um, or he's, um, he's not getting hit around, but he's not necessarily generating the type of um, results that we want. And so, you know, he's also a fade. So really the only one that interests me in this group is means, uh, I don't have any shares of Erod. I might be interested if he fell far enough, but you know, I, I'd like to get a, through spring training before I commit. Yeah, Means is probably the top one here uh, for me as well. The the things you've mentioned, we talked about many times with Means, but just the improvements he made throughout the the season with the velocity, and you know, it was like one or two bad starts really, which we can't throw out. But that's pretty much outside of that. He finished the second half of the season phenomenal, like really, really good especially considering the division he's in the ballpark he pitches in. There's a lot to like with the means in a positive way. So I'm with you on, on – we've talked about him many, many times. Erod I'm very intrigued by just because the positive reports – like going into last season before COVID hit, like I was all in on Erod. I've been a big Erod fan. You see him now. And, you know, last year he was going around pick, you know, what, 140? It feels like 150-ish, give or take. So we're getting about 70 to 80 pick discount for obvious reasons. Um, it's just – I agree that you, you kind of want to see what he's doing, but it's one of those right now. If you like Erod, if he does good, his value is just going to start skyrocketing. So it's almost like you got to get in now if you want to take the punch because 
if you're going to get him one way or the other, wouldn't you rather get him at the discount? And he's okay. It sounds weird. Get him at the discount, and if he's not as good, you're okay. But if you uh, all of a sudden think he has a couple of good spring training starts, the price goes up, and then he's still not that good. Well, now you're kind of screwed. So it's kind of like if you're going to go in on Erod, go now, and instead of wait till later. I think there's a lot to like with him. I think they need a starting pitching like really, really badly in that Boston rotation. So if he can go, if he says he can go, I think they're going to let him go. So that's one that we have to keep an eye on. Andrew Heaney is never a go for me either. He's always hurt or he's just not producing like you said. Christian Javier, I'm intrigued by. I agree a lot of his stats look sketchy as hell, but he's always been a strikeout guy in the minor leagues. He has a phenomenal slider that I'm hoping more time with the Astros, they start using the slider more than his other pitches because a lot of the damage that was done on him was on his fastball and his change. And I talked about this on Pot of Palooza the other day, and he has a very, very good slider. If they can utilize that, lots of ground balls, lots of swing and miss, that'll change things. But it's, it's a big question mark and it's a big risk. So um, don't go like running to play to, to draft him. I'd rather have means, I'd rather have Erod in this group. But I'm not completely riding off Javier, especially because in some drafts, he just keeps falling. And all of a sudden, now you're comparing him not to this group, but you're comparing him to like a, a Zach Davies or something. And now it's like, well, you got the steady Eddie Zach Davies, or you got this kind of kid that could be upside if he figures it out. So it, that's when start, it starts to change with Christian Javier. So means Erod for me in this group. That's about it. All right, the next one intrigues me. Like we just talked about Erod and, and kind of being excited about him. James Paxton at pick 232. Now we already know there's always tons of injury risk with James Paxton. That is built into this price already. But the Mariners are talking six-man rotation, which might benefit a guy like James Paxton in a tremendous way. And now you're not paying a premium for James Paxton. Are you intrigued at all by a 232 ADP of James Paxton? I'm intrigued. For sure. I just haven't been able to get there. You know, it's one of those things where when you're in a draft, 232 sounds like, ah, 233 is like late enough, whatever. But when you're in a draft, you kind of feel like, oh, you know, and this is where I always end up. Like, I always end up not being on these these riskier players because when I think about it, when I think about, oh, here's a guy who's going to play every single day or here's still a, an outfielder that I really like, you know, here's, here's a guy who can fill in, who can play third base for me or whatever versus, you know, taking a risk that I know is more often than not, probably not going to work out exactly how I want it to. But when you look at the skills that Paxton had, I mean, last year was really a year that he lost not only to injury, but small sample size nonsense, you know, 365 Babbitt, 55.1% strand rate, a 1.77 home run per nine. Now, those home runs are, are certainly an issue for him. Even when he was last in Seattle in 2018, 1.29 home runs per nine. But, you know, the K minus walk rate was 21.1%. Very good. Swinging strike rate at 13.2%. All the other metrics look really, really solid. So I think, like you mentioned, it's just a matter of is he going to pitch? I think when he pitches, he will be effective. Obviously, um, uh, T-Mobile, that's what it's called now. It'll always be, it'll always be safe go to me. Um, but uh, T-Mobile obviously plays a lot better uh, than Yankee Stadium, you know, in that in that AL West. It's also a nice little change of scenery for him, and he's home. You know, I mean, this is where uh, he started playing. So it would be great if he pitches really well. Whether or not I can take the, the dive into James Paxton at the price that he's going at right now, I'm not really sure, but Certainly, if you are willing to stomach the risk, I think there's huge, well, I, I can't say huge profit potential, but 
you know, if you're okay with like a hundred innings, you know, being kind of a max for him, I think, um, which it could be a hundred really, really good innings. So. And that's the thing is it could be a hundred. I, I wouldn't be shocked if it's a small deal. He's getting old, get him one twenty five even. And now you're talking uh, 125 really good innings, you know, every six day, like we talked about, he's well over a K per nine. Um, majority of the time, he's like a 28 to 30% uh, K percentage guy, walks about 78% guys that he that he faces. He's been just a very, very effective pitcher, like you said. Is it, The question is, when does he pitch? But when he does pitch, it's very good, as you mentioned. Uh, and you look at his stats, they're pretty in sync year in and year out of what he does. Been a little more home run happy the last few years, but so is the baseball. So I'm going to kind of grain of salt that one for him but when he's been on he's been an elite pitcher that uh, it's tough to beat so i it's one of those in a year the more i start thinking the dead in baseball the more i start thinking about six man rotations the more i start thinking about a lot of guys are gonna have trouble getting innings a james paxton all of a sudden getting 100 to 120 innings at pick you know 230 something it sounds kind of intriguing because we've talked about it before toby like with other positions okay you you kind of have an idea a guy's gonna get hurt so now, or he's not coming up right away. So you're replacing him with something like you're, you're doing this whole deal. So we're going to go get 120 innings of James Paxton and then go get another pitcher off the waiver or get a few stream pitchers for like four to six weeks or whatever. That turns into one really good pitcher potentially. So I, I, I the more I started talk, looking into Paxton about a week ago, I started getting much more excited about the idea of getting James Paxton at this point in the draft. Mm. Yeah, I mean, my, the big thing for me is you could also get a zero. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, definitely. That's, but the that's thing what is, I was thinking about. <laughs> but the thing is, I'd rather get a zero at this point in the draft than, say, going like Steven Strasburg earlier and be like, okay, now I'm screwed. Or going to Nelson Lamette earlier and now I'm screwed. Because, like, the upside for those two guys is pretty darn awesome, too. But we know there's a ton of risk there as well. And Paxton used to go where those guys were going. So. Yeah. That's good. It's a great point. That's it. That's my that's my scenario there. Just trying to convince myself that his upside compared to some guys around him might be a little bigger. Um, the next two guys we got here: Eliezer Hernandez around pick two thirty eight, Jordan Montgomery around pick two thirty seven. Two young arms, both in the Eastern Divisions, one in the AL, one in the NL. Um, for now, both look like they have jobs. Uh, what's your take on these two pitchers? Yeah, I'm a huge huge Jomo fan. Um, I, I will insist on referring to him as Jomo. That's Jordan Montgomery. I still do not understand how that hasn't stuck as a nickname. How, I mean, Jordan Montgomery, Jomo. I mean, that's like, seems pretty it's gold. It's gold. People start saying it. Um, so with Jomo, I really enjoy, uh, I really like him a lot. I think he, you know, if you look at the skills last year, um, swing strike rate up close to 13%, really nice there. O swing and elite 37.1%, which you'd love to see, which got that walk rate at 4.7%. Came on his walk rate is around 20%. I think there's strikeout upside too, when you think of the fact that he had about a 13.7% swinging strike rate, but his K percentage was just around league average. I believe his CSW was also pretty good, but I, I, I do not have that in front of me. And so, you know, again, 320 BABIP. BABIPs have been a little bit of an issue for him in the past. Home runs have been an issue for him throughout his career. But still, if he can be at that, you know, career average of 1.25, if he's not walking any guys, if he's pitching to that same skill level, um, I think that that is, is really, really nice. Elisa Hernandez, I was actually into Elisa Hernandez in 2019. He had a brief stint 
um, where it's super effective. Actually, going back to Jomo, change up 23.7% uh, swinging strike rate. I mean, that is fantastic. And I know his velocity was also up, I want to say. Um, his velocity was up about a mile per hour last year. So, and he's one more year removed from Tommy John, which is really nice. With Eliezer, the biggest thing for me, he's a two-pitch guy. You know, his changeup is terrible. His slider is really nice. His forcing is really nice. The thing that I can't quite understand is how he is effective with the forcing fastball. The forcing fastball generates about league average, slightly maybe above league average swinging strike rate on it, about 91.1% swinging strike rate on that forcing in the last two years or so. But um, I just... I just have a hard time knowing why it's effective because it's like 91.8 mile per hour still. And he's always struggled against lefties, but this past year he was successful against lefties, but I can't really put my finger on exactly why it is. So maybe I need to dive in a little bit more deeply and, and figure out why, um, why what he's doing is special. Uh, because other than that, I see a guy who's got a, a really good slider, you know, not necessarily a elite slider, but a really good slider a decent fastball and no changeup, but has somehow managed to be incredibly successful over the last little bit. And I just, I just can't, it's kind of like Zach Plesak where I'm like, I just don't quite understand why he was able to be so effective when there wasn't really anything that different from his performance in the past. It, it's funny you mentioned that because I pulled up his pitch leaderboard and on his fastball, 11.6% swinging strike rate, 19.5% called strike he lives 53, almost 54% of the time in the shadow range with his fastball. So it's just mm. like police act, just like the Indians. He's hanging out on the edge, and he's painting, basically. So that's what I'm gaining out of looking at this. Uh, obviously, you could probably see more by digging in deeper on this, but it's a lot of what you're saying. That's why he has a 31.1% CSW on it, which is great, but you know, almost 20% of that's uh, a call strike because he just he's painting. That's the best way I can see it. Um can you slider do that sustainably is the question. Yeah, that's, that's the Which, question. And that's the question we have every year with the Indians pitchers. <laughs> and Bieber proved us wrong. Can Plesak do it too? I don't know. Yeah. Um, I guess LA is in the same boat. It is always terrifying just having a two-pitch pitcher, though. That's that's pretty pretty scary. Like, sure, the changeup's there, but that's it's getting used about 10% of the time. So I guess it qualifies, but not ideal. Not ideal at all. And that's another one. He, he throws that 40 – he only throws that 5% in the zone, 40% in the shadow. So his changeup's not even in the zone much. He doesn't throw anything in the zone very much. Just the more I look about yeah. and look at this, there's his changeups in the zone twenty five percent of the time. Uh, sliders in the zone fifty five and the fat forcing sixty one. But he throws that fa the fastball a lot. Yeah. So here's this is in, um, yeah like he actually gave up really hard contact last year. Mm -hmm. Exit velocity ninety one point eight percent. Barrel rate seven point seven percent. So better than league average, but he somehow managed to have, you know, he still had a, a 268 expected Woba. So, yeah, that's interesting. That max exit velocity is 113 on the fastball. Yeah. So that's uh, it's getting beat up. 9.3% uh, barrel on the fastball, 4.8% on the slider, slider heavy ground ball. Fly balls, he, just, he doesn't give up a ton of high fly balls with the fastball. That's pretty impressive. A lot of line drives. Not even that. A lot of pop-ups. He had a 36% mm. pop-up with, with the, with the forcing fastball. So I don't know if he's being deceptive or... Yeah, it's weird. He doesn't even have good spin at yeah. all on it. It's not like a spin thing, you know? Because especially with pop-ups, like, you know, we've seen that from guys like Boyd and guys with pretty good spin, I think, on the four scene. They get those pop-ups, but yeah. 
Like his deserved his DERA according to the the pitch leaderboard on his changeup minus four point six four, on his slider 0.58, on his fastball five point two five, had an expo bacon of four oh seven. So, but still a twenty seven percent K rate on the fastball deserved K twenty one percent. Not great, but you know he's still he's getting it done. Deserved barrel at ten point three on the fastball. It's it's an ugly pitch. He um he gets he gets away with it enough to utilize the slider and the changeup. It looks like for now. That's that's what's working. But back to the overall story, Jomo Jomo is the is the guy that's, that's definitely intriguing here. I, a lot of us liked him last year. Obviously, things got a little wacky with COVID and still coming back from the uh, Tommy John. But there's a lot of things that uh, point in the right direction, as you mentioned, especially the velocity. We love seeing that after Tommy John uh, situations, and he he just has a great repertoire here. The sinker, he gets the job done with that. But then change up the curveball. Uh, lots to like with, with everything that he does. He's basically a four-pitch pitcher, which is beautiful. Um, yeah, lots to like about Jordan Montgomery, especially with being on the Yankees. So I'll be with you on that one. I'll jump on uh, Jordan Montgomery, but LDSR intrigues me. Just another – like once I get to this point in the draft, I'm not running to take LDSR. There's a guy after this, Eovaldi, I'd probably rather take. But um, he at least intrigues me enough to, to want to look at it some more with LDSR Hernandez. He's right. a he's a mystery yeah. wrapped in an enigma. <laughs> well said, well said. Uh, the next dude, Nate Evaldi, a pick two forty four. Tony Gonsolin, at pick two forty five. I wanted to mention these two because Evaldi, we I love a lot of people love, but we also know that he's only going to throw so many innings because that's what Evaldi does. And then you got Tony Gonsolin. Does he have a job? What is it? Lots of questions there. So really, they could end up throwing about the same amount of innings by the end of the year. So where do you go on these two? Yeah, this is an interesting group. I actually, I don't think I have any shares of either one of these guys, but I don't necessarily dislike them. I mean, with Eovaldi, I'm a little bit of a believer in the sense that not that he's like a top priority for me, but, you know, he had his his highest swinging strike rate last year around 13%. I think it's the cutter that he's developed. You know, we all know he's always had velocity, but even with that velocity, he hasn't been able to generate above at league average strikeouts, you know, swinging strike rates, all that jazz. But with the cutter that he's developed, you know, that really took a step forward last year. And even though he got hit pretty hard, you know, just in terms of his BABIP and had some pretty bad luck numbers, he still was able to maintain an ERA under four in the AL East, which is which is no small feat. So that's really nice. He's already throwing gas this spring. Um, I don't know if you saw Jason Collette, but he threw up um, his uh, stat cast, which is also really cool is that for some of the spring training games, we can now see the stat cast data directly. Um, which is really, really cool. We don't just have to rely on, you know, getting like beat reporters to to tweet out how fast guys were thrown it. We can actually see it for ourselves. So Eovaldi definitely intrigues me. He's in this group like between kind of 180 and, and 240, where I think there's a lot of really high upside arms. And yes, he's always gotten injured, but, you know, you never know. Like if you know you have a good pitcher and he's healthy at the start of the season and you're drafting him here, you just go with it. Right. You know, you just go with it. And who knows, maybe you luck into that one season where he's able to put it all together for the full year. Um, I also I mean, Gonsolin, it's all about opportunity. He's got a a filthy repertoire. I mean, he throws gas like his velocity is pretty high. He's got the great, I think, slider slider and changeup that both generate more than 20 percent swinging strike rate. I mean, he is really, really, really good. And again, like you mentioned, it's it's a real challenge. And. Um, 
you know, I think it might have been Rob Silver on the most recent launch angle. He was talking about Gonsolin. I think he had a really good point where maybe Gonsolin's the type of guy that in a in a draft and hold or something like that, you don't mind grabbing him because when he's in the rotation, he's going to be incredibly good. And when he's pitching, he's going to be incredibly good. But he's a really hard guy to have in a fab league when you have a small bench like an NFBC because you're not necessarily able to you, – you don't know when he's going to pitch, right? So you're holding on to that bench spot. Maybe he's your, you know, middle reliever who's, you know, going to get you ratios when you don't have, you know, a guy that you want to have in there. But, um, yeah, it's just he's kind of tough to roster in in some some leagues that aren't that don't have really deep benches. So that's the only concern there. But I think they're both really good pitchers. I think Gonsolin. I mean, imagine if Gonsolin was on the Dodgers and we knew he was going to be in the rotation, he'd be way a lot earlier, there, right? A lot earlier. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, right now, what I say is like two forty five. I'd be willing to almost go a hundred picks higher. I don't know if I, that might be too crazy, but he's that yeah. good. He's totally. that good to me. Like totally. I mean, I mean, Justin May was around. going like around there in draft, so that one's comical. He to could me. easily be there. Yeah, at least at least Tony Johnson strikes guys out, yeah. so um, he's got that going for him. But that that you kind of nailed the, the tiebreaker for me. Like in the end, I think Gonsolin's probably the better fantasy pitcher if he had a job that we knew about. We know what Eovaldi has, and kind of how I said the Red Sox need Erod to throw innings. I hundred percent guarantee Eovaldi's just throwing as much as he possibly can. Like they have zero care there, because I think he might be a free agent after this year. Too. Yeah, I think they. I think he just signed a two year deal with them. Yeah, so they just they don't really. He's just he's going. He's pitching, and that's what he's going to do until the wheels fall off. I think, or he just gets blown up. Either way, that's just where it's going to go. So I love Eovaldi. He's shown signs of life the last few years. I've been riding that train. Uh, if you if you check out a bloom board that involves pitching, you have all these somehow shows up on most of them for the good, not the bad. And um, I, I'm just a big fan of what he's doing. So I'll I'll be drafting Evaldi where I can. And somehow I have not got him in a lot of places yet because other people I think are on the same page. But uh, I have Evaldi over Gonsolin strictly due to job. That's all it is. If it was like you said, if if Gonsolin had a job, this wouldn't even be a debate because he wouldn't be here. So the, the, that that's what it comes down to. It's I guess if you're pretty solid in your your staff and you want to take a flyer on Gonsolin, sure. It's just tough because the way the Dodgers roll, you could be holding them for a month or two before he actually has that starting job for a bit. And then you'll lose it again because somebody else is back. Like it's just a headache. That's why, like you said, drafting holds perfect. Best ball where you just, they plug it in for you. Perfect. Uh, daily leagues where you can use him for when he'll be out of the bullpen and stuff. A little more intriguing to me because he's still going to be in the, the pen, throwing some innings that are going to be counting and they'll be good. But to trust him in like an NFC or any any sort of weekly league, it's gonna be tough. It's gonna be very very tough. So uh, for that reason alone, I'll go Evaldi. But with the caveat, different league situations, Gonsolin will probably jump Evaldi for me. And just a heads up, Evaldi's actually signed through twenty twenty two. I just oh. checked it out. Yeah, he signed a four year deal. I guess back oh, that's in right. twenty nineteen, they, they paid him a ridiculous amount of money. That's right. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. Which, or 90 million or something. Which like was nice. Cause remember how they used him in the postseason, like where yep. they just wore him out. Yep. Um, so yeah. Yep. Yeah, that is correct. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, the next one, Sean Manaya pick two fifty one. Ryan Yarborough pick. No, yeah. Ryan Yarborough pick two sixty. It's about 10 picks apart, give or take. But to me, this is a weird, uh, 10 picks apart. So where do you stand on these two? Yeah. I mean, I don't really have much of an interest in Manaya, to be honest with you. Um, the skills really weren't 
um, that good last year and they haven't been for a little bit. I mean, he kind of came on the scene. I remember his rookie year and was throwing some, um, was throwing some filth, but like last year, 9.6% swinging strike rate, you know, he had a really low, um, really low walk rate, but the metrics aren't necessarily don't necessarily, you know, reflect that. I mean, maybe he didn't walk a lot of guys cause he was giving up so much contact. I mean, 90% in zone contact rate, you know, that's super high 80% uh, overall contact rate, really high. You know, he had a 16.7% uh, K minus walk. So again, that's really nice. And if he can keep that walk rate really low, which he's been able to do, you know, pretty effectively, doesn't give a lot of, up a lot of home runs. I mean, maybe he's a guy who can help you a little bit with your ratios, um, you know, but doesn't necessarily bring the Ks. So maybe there's a little bit of interest, but not necessarily where he's going. Cause I think there's some more upside arms that I'm interested in. Yarbrough is a guy that I absolutely love. I mean, yeah. um, I've been drafting him. Uh, all, all the time. If you just look at the metrics, I mean, the swinging strike rate up at 13.3%. Somehow the K rate is at 19%, which just doesn't make any sense at all because any explanation you kind of try to come up with, with why he didn't have a higher strike rate doesn't make sense. Like sometimes when guys are, are get hit inside the zone a lot, you know, they have a hard time putting guys away. But for him, his in-zone contact rate was great at 81.1%. His O swing was league high at 40.8%. That's why his walk rate is just supremely low. Last two years, 3.6%, 5.1% with that walk rate. If you look at the deserved K and the deserved walk rates for Yarborough um, on uh, Alex Chamberlain's pitch leaderboard, they go in the right directions. You know, So I think he's got some positive regression coming his way if he's able to maintain this. Then he also gives up really poor contact. So when he does give up contact, he doesn't give up home runs. He's under one home run per nine in the last two years. You know, that's 200 innings pitched essentially. And I think he gets a little bit of a bad rap in, in terms of like the fact that, you know, I think people oftentimes don't think that he goes that deep into games. And obviously with the Rays, he's not going that deep. But if you look at him, you know, he went, uh, he went five innings, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven seven out of his nine games that he started, you know, he went at least five innings. So he's at least qualifying for a win. And so I think he gets a little bit of a bad rap for not going deep into games. And with the Rays bullpen that they're going to have, and we know they're going to have, yes, you'd like him to go deeper into games, but if he comes out, he pitches well, those five innings and you turn it over to the Rays bullpen, you got to feel pretty confident about his ability to get wins. Although last year, I think he, what did he have one win or zero wins or something like that? So Again, you know, luck always factors into things. He had one win last year. He was one in four last year. So take or take or leave what I just said about getting having access to wins with that bullpen. Um, but I, I really like Yarbrough a lot. He's been a target for me throughout the year. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to put these two together because the fact that Yarbrough is going tip picks after Man- Man- Sean Manaya is pretty uh, silly to me. I remember last year, Manaya's velocity just kept dropping and dropping and dropping, and he was getting hit all the time. And he'd have a couple of good starts here and there, and it was just kind of like, how do you do it? And we just pick on him in DFS nonstop because it was just – he might get through like one time and it'd be okay. The second time for the order, it was tee off central. So I, I don't get it with him. Like you said, when he came on the scene, things were good with Manaya. Something's not right. Something's not right at all. So I'll be staying far, far away from him, but Ryan Yarborough – this pick kind of surprises me that he hasn't moved up even more in the draft. Um, strikeouts, like you said, maybe that's what's keeping people off, but all the uh, deserved Ks look a lot better. He's still getting better year after year. 
he feels like, you know, it is the race, so they're going to limit their guys. We've kind of established that, but they can't limit everybody. At least they shouldn't be able to. But he feels like he's on, like, the Yanni Chirinos path where it's opener. Okay, now we'll let you go four or five. Okay, now you're ready to go six or seven. Like, that's what Chirinos did before he got hurt. And I'm mm. not saying that's what got him hurt, but that's kind of like it was year one. Year, it was like a phase. Um, it feels like that's where Yarbrough's at now. He's like, okay, now it's time for you to be able to go six or seven. Kind of how they let Snell go until Snell got hurt. So maybe it's just a maybe it's a bad philosophy for these arms that gets them hurt. I don't know. But I like Yarbrough quite a bit. You nailed the other stuff. His uh, pitch mix, the success with his pitches is good. It'd almost be nice if he used the curveball more and kind of put the cutter to the side a little bit. It's used the chain sinker curve a little bit more the because the cutter seemed like it was getting beat up the most out of all of them. So we'll see what he does. But there's a lot to like there with Ryan Yarborough. Big fan uh, going into this season. As the guys on uh, Derek Rose and some others from the best balls, uh, they call it, they're all Yarbros. They're Yarbros. So uh, Yarbros. They're Yarbros. I love it. I so, love it. Big, big fans. Uh, the next one we got here is Zach Davies, pick 268, and Numet, Taiwan Walker, about 269, right behind him. You know, you got the 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 vet that uh, new in Chicago. You got Taiwan Walker at the Mets. I really don't have any shares of either, but where do you stand on these two? You know, I do really like Davies. I haven't drafted him, so just being honest with that. Um, but I really like some of the changes he made last year with San Diego. He started throwing the changeup, which is a pretty good pitch, um, both in terms of the, the poor contact that it generates and it's his highest swing, swing and miss pitch. So he increased uh, his usage of that 10% over 2019, you know, faded the fastball usage, um, incorporated a cutter a little bit. And that saw his strikeout um, strikeout go up. And if you look at him, he's one of these guys who you're like, ah, oh, Zach Davies, he's lame, whatever. He can't do anything for me. But, you know, he's going late enough in drafts. And he's the type of guy I think that's going to fall because the ceiling may not seem as high. He's going to a really good pitcher's park um, in Wrigley Field and a really poor hitting league in the NL Central. And when you look at this, his career ERAs, right, 371, 397, 390, 477, 355, 273. Whips, 121, 125, 135, 133, 129, 107. Right? All of those are incredibly serviceable. And obviously they're coming, you know, they're they're coming um, with a little with a cost because the strikeout rates are low. But especially in today's game, where I think, you know where volume is such a huge question mark. It's like, especially a guy like him who has gone, you know, he doesn't go deep into games, but he's thrown, you know, um, well, he threw 159 in, in 2019. I just think that, you know, maybe, maybe he can make up a little bit with additional volume compared to some other pitchers, the strikeouts that he's going to be deficient in. And so if you find yourself, he's the type of guy where I'm not really interested in him where he's going right now at ADP just because of where some other players are going around him. But when you, when he starts to fall into, what is he at right now? Uh, two fifth, uh, 268. 268. So when he starts to fall around pick 300 or maybe even later than that, which I, I could see happening because we're looking at online drafts, which are 12 teamers, you know? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's when it gets a, maybe a little bit interesting is just a guy that you can throw in there who you are pretty confident is going to get you good ratios. Um, you know, and, and that's that's something uh, for right now. Uh, Taiwan Walker, I don't really see any redeeming qualities in him. Um, I think he's going to be a, a, 
a contract that the Mets really regret. And I could be absolutely wrong, but there's just nothing that he did last year that supports what he was able to do. Swinging strike rate at a minuscule 7.8%. Um, you know, the strikeout rate at 22.2% really should not have been that high. You know, the the walk metrics were god-awful. O-swing at 24.2%. Uh, wasn't getting ahead of hitters. Giving up 90% contact in the zone. 81.6%. Total, like everything. Everything, everything in his profile is really, really bad. Um, and obviously he's injured and he comes with some prospect pedigree for sure. So things can always change, but... There's just nothing I really see in this in this profile at all, and I think he's going to be a guy that um, that the Mets are going to rue giving that much money to. Uh, I, f- I felt like they were just like, why not give that money to Odorizzi? You know, like that's that's what I just don't understand from him. Yeah, Odorizzi must be asking for too much money because the fact he's still a free agent is pretty pretty crazy to me. Yeah, so that, that's a weird yeah. one. But uh, Walker's just tough because like everyone's like, oh look, he's throwing harder, he's doing this. But you, you just like you said, you look at his overall numbers and then the X stats and the FIPS and all the good stuff, and none of it looks like it should have happened. It's really weird. And the more important thing to me, so maybe the ratios are okay. He had a like a two fifty three BABIP last year, like one of the lowest of his career. So that that helped as well. But he's not a strikeout guy at all. So that's that's very terrifying. Uh, so your your you know K to walk percentage is never going to be good. So you're just playing with fire and hoping the ratios stay good, and I just don't think it will. Where Zach Davies is intriguing, his ratios have been there pretty much year in and year out, like you said. And the other part that's really interesting is he started throwing harder this last year, and the strikeout rate jumped uh, tremendously for him, which is which is very very intriguing. The only concern I have with that is when you look at his pitches, the changeup, you know, twenty one point one percent swinging strike, eight point seven percent called strike, but then his sinker, two point five percent swinging strike, thirty percent called strike. Uh, the the cutter four point two percent swinging strike twenty one percent called strike yeah and then the curveball even six point seven percent swinging strike twenty three percent called strike so he's living in that called strike world and that, uh, what, that what was the CSW do you have it in front of you uh, I have him by pitch give me like two seconds to reload uh, I have it here okay. just a second it just takes a little no while with with uh, Tableau to to recirculate mm-hmm. things but um, all of those were anywhere from 25 to 32. His overall CSW was 30.1 at 10.6% swinging strike, 19.5% called strike. Mm. So, so he, Interesting. he really relied on called strikes last year, which I don't know if he was just that much more effective or what it was, but that's just like one of the concerns I have with Davies. I'd like Davies over Walker. That's not a, that's not the debate here anymore. That's, that's settled. But I think the reason why I'm not as gung-ho about Davies, where I, maybe I should be because even the ratios alone at this point in the draft are tremendous, like you mentioned. But I think that like four to five percent strikeout increase last year compared to like basically his career norms, how sustainable is that? That's what I want to know because that's a lot of call strikes there. That uh, be interesting to see how it plays out. But then again, Central Division could help him quite a bit. So definitely give me something to play into. All right, sticking in that Central Division here, we got Kwang Hung Kim at pick two eighty and Matthew Boyd at pick two eighty four. One of these guys I like a ton. One, not so much. What about you? Yar bros versus Boyd boys. <laughs> that's a fun um, one. That, that's, that's when picture list collides. Yeah. Um, so for me, um, I mean, Kwon Young Kim is interesting in the sense that, you know, last year was his first year. COVID impacted. So take it with a grain of salt. But, you know, he gave up way too much contact. The strikeout rate was um, very low. 
obviously, I mean, kind of like uh, so low, you can't really use it. I don't really see a huge air room for improvement. I mean, you didn't have that great of a strikeout rate in Korea either. I mean, just from like a, a case per nine perspective, you know, none of his pitches really popped last year. You know, the changeup had the highest swinging strike rate at 13.5%, slider at 10.7%, but none of them were super effective in the zone outside of the changeup, uh, maybe a little bit. Um, he does generate a decent number of ground balls. So that's that's something that he can kind of hang on to. And he plays in a really good defensive team with the Cardinals in a really good league and in a really good home park. And so those are all benefiting him. But the question is, even if he's a good pitcher from a ratios perspective, those strikeouts could be super low. So I don't mind him as kind of like a late kind of ratios check um, because I think he'll have some good starts this year. But uh, I'm just not that into him. Boyd is definitely interesting. I mean, last year, we know that the slider was really good. The four seam always got crushed around. Last year, his changeup was actually better than his slider. Uh, for Boyd um, from a swinging strike perspective, just generally. And so he now has those three pitches again, and he looked better towards the end of last year. But again, the question is just how hittable is that fastball? Um, and we've seen how bad he can be. And so it'll be really interesting to see. I'll be interested to see what his velocity is like um, in spring training for Boyd, if we get a chance to to check out what he was able to do, because I think he lost a little bit of that over the last couple seasons. So if he's maybe able to regain something that can play up those other pitches, but he's worth a shot with those two, with the slider changeup combo, you know, both being, I think 20% plus on the swinging strike rate scale and um, just being really good. I'm going on my memory right there. So I might be a little bit off, but um, both, both really good pitches from a metric perspective. Again, he continues to have uh, difficulty with being hit too hard. So for out of those two, I would go Boyd, I think just for upside, um, but I can understand people taking the safer route with Kim. Yeah, this is a this is a fun one. Boyd does have a ton of upside, but I just want to read you some stats here. Um, 7.08 K per nine, 7.63, 7.28 the last three years for one pitcher. 288 ERA, 348, 344 ERA for this one pitcher. And a one whip, 1.13, 1.15 whip for this one pitcher. And that's none of the two we've talked about. Do you know what pitcher I'm talking about? His name's Kyle Hendricks. He's going 200 picks before Kung on Kim. And if you look at their player pages, they're extremely similar. Mm. Extremely similar. Uh, very similar. Like Kim's actually shown, given KBO for the most part, has shown a better striker rate than the KBO. But what he has shown in both leagues is phenomenal ratios. And, he's, and he can go innings. So there's a lot of similarities. Hendricks, better pitcher. Not going to deny that. But 200 picks difference. You can get a guy like Kim that has the pedigree and a humongous ground ball pitcher in Kim, like you mentioned, which would be huge with the Cardinals. There's a lot of similarities to one Kyle Hendricks that uh, really stands out about this point. Like we just talked about Zach Davies as a ratio guy. I think I trust Kim more so than I do Davies just for the fact I don't know if Davies' called strike situation is going to hold up for him. Kim, even when the ball's in play, I feel better about things. So um, I like I like Kim quite a bit. I don't disagree with wanting to take a chance on Matt Boyd. I just seen this thing blow up so many times it scares the living snot out of me. But hey, he's got good stuff. If he can figure out how to use it properly, that could be great. But I'll just pass on that. I'll take my chance on Kim, though. I'm a big fan of that. All right. The next one here has some very intriguing arms in the later rounds of drafts. Dane Dunning at pick 305, Josh Lindblom at 307, Griffin Canning at 307. 
Uh, Limblum has been talked about a ton, but he's not really moving up in drafts as much as I expected. Where do you stand on these three? Yeah, I'm a big I'm a big Limblum fan. Um, just love what he was able to do. The pitch mix, everything points towards some positive regression having ha- heading his way. Twelve point four percent swinging strike rate, eighteen point eight percent K minus walk rate. You know, in zone contact was even better than the average, better than the average O swing. So everything looks pretty good from that perspective. And I think, you know, you can tell by just his engagement in Twitter, he's, he's, a, he's, he's smart and he's like thinking about his pitching and thinking about how to improve. I know he worked on his um, spin efficiency. Uh, that was like his, his, one of his major focuses over the off season had an 11.6% swinging strike rate on that forcing fastball. So if he can improve that to go along with 21.7% swinging strike rate on that slider, 15.3 on his splitter, all good chase rate pitches. You know, I just love the repertoire. I love him pitching for the Brewers, even though it's not the greatest, you know, home park. I mean, the fact that it's in the NL Central, I think, is going to be really nice. So I'm a big fan of um, Lindblom. Um, Canning is also um, pretty interesting. Um, I know that he has a couple pitches in his arsenal. Obviously, the injury concerns and the volume concerns, which are concerns for everybody, like are in particular, you know, a concern for him. Uh, better than league average last year from a swinging strike perspective. You know, the O swing dipped a little bit. I want to look at his pitch mix, though, because I fe- feel like he has fastball, at least two pitches ball, that are. Fastball, curveball, slider. Yeah, yeah so, he's, so he's got the slider with 21.9%, you know, swinging strike rate. The cutter and the changeup that he threw a lot more than the curveball, right around 12%. The four seems just not good enough. Fastball's not good enough, I'm guessing velocity dip yeah 1.1 mile per hour velocity dip so i think it'll be interesting to see where his velocity is at i'm not that interested just because i think there are questions about volume and um, questions about what he might be able to do but certainly at you know going later in drafts like this um you could hope for uh for a run a renaissance and um back to that first uh, back to 2019 because he was a lot better in his rookie year there was a lot to be I'm really interested in. So monitoring his velocity over the spring will be a big one. Dunning, I haven't dove in that much. Um, I don't know what the plan the Rangers have for him. Um, You know, I know he looked decent in some starts last year, but I don't know. I don't know. I just haven't been interested in in the spot where he's going. What's his ADP? He's going around like Limblom and, and these other guys who I think are much better shouts than he is. Yeah, he's 305. The other two are 307. So, yep. Right next, he's going yeah. two picks ahead of him, basically. Yeah, the slider is certainly interesting. Um, heavily relying outside the zone and zone contact. You know, that slider is 89.7%, but generates 22% swinging strike rate. Really nice O swing. So, there's certainly some building blocks to go off of right there. And the four seem also decent, but. Um, just not sure what the plan is, how many how many innings and volume he's going to get, and just not a priority compared to the other other folks. But I also haven't clearly done as much research maybe on him as I should have. Yeah, Dunning, I don't hate it if you want to gamble, but there's a lot of question marks just even on in workload with a guy like Dunning that gets you kind of curious on what they're going to do there. So for me, it comes down to Limbaugh and Canyon. And Canyon's velocity was down last year, but I believe it ticked up the last two starts. So he started to show some signs of life. And he was, you know, he was dealing with that injury where some thought he should add TJ, but he didn't. So love to kind of keep an eye on that. But he looked pretty good once the Velo started ticking up a little more. Still question marks, but I'd rather try him than Andrew Heaney if I'm talking about Angels pitching. So that that part intrigues me. But Limblum's the guy I want as well. 
He has five pitches with at least a 10% swinging strike rate or better last year. A CSW rate of 30% or better on four of those five pitches, which is outstanding for if you look at his overall numbers, like how the heck did that just not work for him? He got unlucky. He had some rough goes. He's also bat- battling a bad back for a few starts. So um, that definitely blew up in his face a couple times. But he's been a, he's been a very, very, very good uh, pitcher, and I expect that to uh, to continue on with him. He had like 0% barrel rates on his four-seamer and his slider, which is crazy. Um, heavy ground ball usage on a lot of that as well. So he, to me, he got very, very unlucky. If you just look at his overall peripherals, uh, look at his, uh, um, his repertoire, as you like to say. Um, repertoire? Repertoire, his repertoire. But like, yeah, his deserved Ks, they all should be better than his – well, a cup – Couple went down, but most of them, like his fastball, should be up to almost thirty-one percent, which is pretty darn nice. A lot of positive regression, as you mentioned. I'm not going to keep going through all of it, but just look at the pitch leaderboard, and it shows you that he was very, very unlucky. And this could be a steal, like you said. He's he's educating himself. He's working on becoming a better pitcher. Everything you want to see with the guy. So I like Limbaugh quite a bit this year at three oh six. I'm really surprised he hasn't moved up at all in drafts. It's uh, quite quite silly to me, to be honest. All right, the next grouping we have here, Mike Miner. Pick three, 12 and a half. Mitch Keller at pick three, 13. Robbie Ray at pick three, 14. Anything stand out to you here? Um, so, yes. Uh, Mike Miner is super interesting to me, um, especially going to Kansas City, a much nicer park um, than he's been in. He actually, you know, his velo was down last year, but he really turned it around um, significantly. Um, I'm going to bring up his last, his last five games here, but his four seam fastball was super effective last year, which is weird because again, you know, the velo, um, the velo was down, but you know, one of the reasons I was into minor a couple years ago when he had that good season, I drafted him a bunch of places. And was, what was really interesting to me was he did, he's, his fastball velo is, is, is decent, but he gets a ton of spin on that fastball. And then he has a changeup that's really nice as well. So he's got a couple of pieces as well as I think he throws a slider or a, or a curve that's a lot less effective. But if you look at his rolling five five game average for his rolling graphs, you know his Z contact was at seventy six point one percent in the zone. That's fantastic. You look at his K rate up at thirty two point one percent. His O swing just bombed forward close to thirty percent, close to league average, but still really nice to see because it dropped that dropped that walk rate down to a serviceable, slightly above league average, but not that bad. And then a 13.6% swinging strike rate over those last five games. Um, and so pretty interesting going to KC, bigger ballpark, you know, um, fewer home runs that he's likely to give up there. You know, four seam had a 10.3% swinging strike rate, changeup had a 14.8% swinging strike rate. Um, and the slider and the curveball, you know, less effective. But I'm I'm intrigued. I'm I'm interested in him where he's going later on. You know, kind of an older guy, older name, but he's going to be in that rotation in KC. I think he could be. I think he could be uh, pretty effective. You know, not not anything like he's going to bust out and be incredible. But a guy who you're drafting late who can get you around a four ERA, one two five WHIP, something like that. You know, with maybe eight Ks per nine. That's 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 pretty serviceable in, in today's game when you can feel confident in putting a guy in there, you know, like minor um, with Robbie Ray. You know, Robbie Ray is super interesting. I mean, the whip is never going to be what you want. But if you think it, that 2020, he was messing with his mechanics early on. Clearly, never never got going. The walk rate, even bad for a normal pitcher 
god awful last year. I don't think he's going to necessarily repeat that. So if you think he goes back to maybe what he was like in Arizona before, with at the at the cost that he's going at right here, there's definitely profit potential. Only concern is the whip. I mean, he just absolutely destroys um, people's um, people's whips. And then with Keller, not really interested. I was actually trying to see if I could find um, his. Uh, Velo, actually, uh, what's he his He was name? throwing hard, fast, tweeted it out. He was throwing yeah, even, even Robbie Ray was at average uh, average 94.8 on his four seam mm-hmm. um, today. We should we should check that up against what he did um, last year. And then Keller was at four seam fastball, an average at 95.4, which is a full mile per hour faster than he was at last year. And this is straight up from, from StatCast data. So... That's actually kind of interesting to me um, to see where he goes. Cause I have never been a, really a fan of, of Mitch Keller. I wasn't last year, but again, you have to keep an open mind with these young guys. He's shown potential with his slider. If that fastball is better and more effective, I mean, that could be a real game changer. So let's see. Yeah. So Robbie Ray last year was at 93, nine for his forcing fastball. And today he was at 94, six. So he's already higher than he was last year. Now, I, I don't know whether all these guns have been uh, calibrated or not, you know, because we've got the same the same game in the same park with guys with elevated fastball velocities. So one th- thing to take into consideration, um, you know, but then, so Robbie Ray's up over a mile per hour on his four-seam fastball, which could be huge for him. And then you look at, yeah, so Keller was at 93.9 last year. He was at 95.4 today, which is much closer to his 2019 velocity. He was never healthy. So again, these are the types of things that we want to be paying attention to in spring training that can change because when you get a guy who bumps up a mile per hour or two miles per hour in fastball velocity, we've seen what that's done for like a Lucas Giolito, for a Blake Snell. You know, in the past, that's when they kind of take the, took the next step. So very intrigued by both of those. It'll be interesting to, to monitor that as they play in different parks. Does that velocity hold up? But if it does, I think maybe there are two guys that you want to think about as potential guys who might be able to beat their projections because the velocity's up. You know what that sound is, Toby? That's uh, someone joining the Mitch Keller bandwagon. Oh, I'm, I'm, re- I'm really, I'm really liking the sounds of this, Toby. You come on down. There's room. Hey. Hop in. You know me, I'm I'm not I'm I'm totally unbiased. I have no biases whatsoever that impact my decision making. Totally open minded to Mitch Keller. I'm just kidding. I'm horribly biased, and I, <laughs> I need to improve my decision making. But um, yeah, no, I think that's super interesting. Actually, um, I'll, I'll be monitoring them throughout spring training to see how they do. Yeah, no, Keller's a guy that I loved going into last year based on his production and his development from like 18 to 19, and then last year just never really clicked because he wasn't healthy uh, most of last year. So. That was a concern, but seeing the velocity up already is very, very encouraging to me. So I'll probably be jumping in that uh, pool a few more times this year. So I think the upside is really, really big with a guy like Mitch Keller. Once he uh, gets that velocity going with his with this slider he has, he's, he's pretty filthy. So I, I like that quite a bit, especially at this point in the draft. Uh, Robbie Ray, I'm just, if he get if he figures it out, so be it. I'm, I'm I, I can't do it. It's like Matthew Boyd to me. They're both just such a mess. Like Boyd, I'd rather take a chance on than Robbie Ray. It's just. Both both are ugly, but Mike Miner, I have quite a few shares of. I've been taking him a lot of places. Um, at this point in the draft, you're getting a guy that's going to eat up a lot of innings, which when we're talking Mitch Keller, Robbie Ray doesn't go deep into games because of his uh, walks. Um, you know, Griffin, D- Dane Dunning won't go long. Matt Boyd gets in trouble. There's a handful of guys that just don't go deep. 
But Mike Miner will, unless he's just having a bad day. He's going to throw a lot of innings for you. Ratios, the whip's usually pretty good. The ERA can be wonky at times, but strikeouts have continued to improve the last couple of years. Like you mentioned, all the stuff about Kansas City, the ballpark and everything is phenomenal. I like Mike Miner quite a bit. He's a guy that I've, I've been targeting at this point. The draft is like your SB7, 8, 9, whatever you're at at that point. But um, I'm, I'm a big fan of him. I have him in quite a few places, and I'll probably be looking to target him in uh, Tout Wars. That's because of the innings pitch right there. I'll, I'll play that game depending on my my staff, but he's a guy that I'll probably have circled at some point, but I'm pretty sure I won't be the only one, so that's why I said it here. But, um, yeah, Miner and, and, and Keller both I like quite a bit this season. Um, Keller, he's a lottery ticket. You can drop him if he struggles. Mike Miner, I think you ride that roller coaster ride most of the year, and you'll be very, very happy with the end results. All right. Just a, just a super detail here. Super, we get super detailed on this podcast. Robbie Ray today had eleven, uh, had eleven, had a forty-two percent CSW on twenty-six pitches, wow. and a twenty, uh, slightly under twenty percent swinging strike rate. And also, what's super annoying is that the Statcast boxes for pitchers now they don't calculate swinging strikes now; they calculate whiffs instead, uh, which is super annoying. Yeah. Super, super annoying. I think. Let me just make sure that I'm not messing this up. Yeah. So they they it's all it's all a jumble. So that's going to be a little bit frustrating because we're going to have to calculate it by ourselves. But um, so that Mitch Keller, unfortunately, only one swinging strike in 21 pitches, mostly fastballs, however, um, a 14% CSW. So the, again, it's early, but you know, every every little detail, every little nuance helps. Here, here's, um, a, here, here's a detail for you. Who Robbie Ray face? Yes, that is a detail that I I'm unbiased. <laughs> but I will not. No, he faced the Pirates. He faced the Pirates, and uh, and Keller went up against the Blue Jays. So. Yes, you're right. You had a harder time with it. Let's see who who's on the Blue Jays team though. Espinal, Espinal, I don't even care. I don't Tellez, even care. Kurt, Valera, Jansen, <laughs> Wall, Martin, Young. And you said Tellers. There's, there's that's nobody. All I say. You said Tellers. Tellers hit two doubles off of him. I think. Like that. <laughs> let's see Robbie Ray versus the Yankees. <laughs> let's see how that goes. Let's, 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 yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I'm all um, in on Robbie Ray now. Oh gosh! No, there's no way you're you're not that risky. I oh mean, God! Just... Remember last year, I I bumped him up and drafted him because I was super excited by his spring. Oh no! Oh not good. God! Not good. Yeah, the team actually, my team that I won the league, I won the league in the main event, and it was I think it finished 24th overall or something like that. God, and I look back and look, and I think about all the mistakes that were made on that one. What, God, what, Robbie, what I drafted been? Robbie Ray. I, I had Brandon Bielak and uh, and and Jordan Lyles start Ooh. games where they gave up 14 earned runs in two innings combined. And you still for like four innings combined. Oh God! What could have been? That team could have been something. Yeah, they're still 24th. It's just not bad. Not bad at all. I finished um, third in the overall in offense on that team, and I still. Whoo. Yep. Yeah, you can thank those guys. Send them a care package. Um, a couple more here. We have Tariq Skubal at pick 334. Dylan Cease at 334.5. Brad Keller at 336. Um, I pretty much paired these ones together because they're close. And Tariq Skubal's getting some buzz as uh, pretty much everyone's loving him in Detroit. 
Uh, Dylan Cease the last week was Fluff P Central, but and you guys Grandal raving about him. Then Brad Keller was quietly really good last year. So what's your take on these three? Yeah, um, I think they're interesting. I mean, I don't really have that much interest in Brad Keller just because I don't believe what he did last year. Um, you know, he he was let me let me get up the page, but I know he was very very lucky. Um, sorry, here two thirty three Babbitt point three three home run per nine. Now he does throw the ball pretty hard, and so he's been able to keep a point six home run per nine for his career. So you don't necessarily expect that that's going to jump up um, too high. I guess he's always been reasonable with ERA. You know, the whips have been a little bit of a problem. He walks a decent amount of guys. Solved that a little bit last year, but actually his walk his walk issues were like pretty similar. I'd, I'd guess his percentage of pitches that were balls last year was pretty similar to what it was in previous seasons. So I think, I think he got a little bit lucky there. So maybe lower ERA guy, higher whip guy. Just not really that interested because the upside isn't that great. Scooball is interesting, but I also think he's going to be really limited in terms of innings pitched, right? I mean, so many guys are, but, you know, Tigers are talking about going to six-man six man rotation. You know, Scooball could be really good, but they don't really have incentive to really, you know, uh, push him up there. So I'm not sure what the season-long, you know, value will necessarily be there. Cease is very interesting to me because, because the issue that he had, which – everybody was kind of aware of was the, was the spin on his forcing fastball. He throws one of the hardest forcing fastballs, but it was an incredibly ineffective, ineffective pitch, but that's apparently what he worked on in the off season, uh, trying to improve the, I think it was the spin efficiency of it and just getting the spin rate up um, because he's got the velocity already. And then he supposedly had a great changeup throughout his minor league career that we've never really seen you know, here in the big leagues, but if that forcing can start working and the changeup works off of it, then, you know, maybe he could make, you know, a really big jump. And, and we've seen how that can, that can happen. And I think the key for, for me, for Cease is that he already has the below. And if you look at the leaderboard for velocity leaders in baseball, they're all, all of them, except for Jose Reña are like really, really good, you know, or like most of them are, are pretty good pitchers and that's because Velo plays. And so if he's able to, improve that forcing fastball. I definitely think he's a guy who could take a pretty big jump, but I also think he's going to be a big helium guy. So he's already going in the early, like in the late two hundreds, you know, from where he was going in draft champions, which was like later in the, in the three hundreds. So, um, I think, I think, um, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm going to be in just cause the cost might be a little bit prohibitive. Like I'd rather have a Josh Limbaum than him. And I think they'll end up going about the same place when all of a sudden done. Yeah, this is a tricky one for me because, like, Cease, uh, the helium's coming, as you mentioned. He's just been a guy that's really frustrating because we've seen the talent in certain starts. He's, he's electric. He's, that's why he's a, a heralded prospect. But his control and command or what, is just atrocious. He starts walking the world. It gets very terrifying. Uh, one of these years he's going to put it together, maybe now that he knows the spin like you're talking about, this is the year. I don't know if I'm going to pay the price for it, though. It's a tricky one. Like, I can see it depending on how my team build is. It, it is intriguing because the ceiling could be massive. But it's very, very tricky. Uh, Scooble's intriguing to me because he threw 120 innings in 2019. Uh, so it's not like he can't go another 100, 120 this year. So if we're talking six-man rotation, 120 innings of Tree Scooble at this point in the draft, sounds interesting to me. That sounds like something I might be able to buy into. So keep an eye on or an ear out to see 
what the chatter is for his innings. If it's, if they're actually going to let him go 120 or so, I'm a bit more intrigued with Tariq Skubal, especially at this point in the draft, because I think his stuff is just ridiculously electric, really, really good stuff. So I, I'd be on board with that. And then Brad Keller, he's just like, we have like one of these guys almost in every grouping. He's like a cheaper Zach Davies. His ratios are pretty solid. Doesn't strike anybody out really. Uh, heavy ground ball guy. Fits well into the program of Kansas City, of course. So he's usually better to be streamed than to be rostered every week. But uh, if you need a ratio guy and you're in a super deep league, knock yourself out. You can go that route. But uh, Scooble and Cease, I'm going to keep a close eye on what's going on this spring. The problem is Cease's helium is already going to start coming up. Scooble might hang around here a little bit longer, and that that's uh, a bit intriguing. Given he's gone as high as 273, Cease has gone as high as 263. So they, there, there have been people that have wanted both of them. But if Scooble can fall, he's fallen as low as 353. becomes interesting. It's one of your last picks in the draft. So I can see uh, taking a shot on him. All right, the last grouping we have here, and there's a lot more guys we're not going to mention, but uh, feel free to ask us questions at any time, and we'll help you out with that. But we've got Spencer Turnbull at 345, Miles Mikulis at 345, Carlos Martinez at 345. So pretty much all sharing similar ADPs. I put Carlos Martinez there just because, you know, if healthy, he's amazing, but that's a big if. Mikulis coming back, this is a guy we used to draft a lot higher, and Turnbull is just – I have a lot of Spencer Turnbull. So what's your take on these three? Yeah, these are guys are interesting. I mean, Mikolas, I would have loved to have in previous seasons, right? I mean, talk about a guy who ratios locked in, doesn't walk a lot of guys. Um, so if he looks good in spring, I'm definitely going to move him up because he's just a he's an ideal person, especially like you know um, with if you do like pocket aces strategy or some or, you know or you grab two aces early on, he's the perfect like leveler to to add in as you're like SP four, SP five. Cause he gets you that good, that solid whip. He gets you that solid ERA. You know, you're not necessarily chasing strikeouts as much and he'll get you like eight, eight Ks per nine. But if he's healthy, right, he missed all of last year. So I'll be interested to see how he looks in spring velocity, all of that jazz. But um, if he looks good, then hop on board. Carlos Martinez is also really interesting because again, you know, injuries moving to the closer role. We forget how recently, you know, he was a very effective starting pitcher. And he's going so late in drafts that he's kind of worth a stab. I don't think he ends up in the closer role. They've got plenty of options there with Hicks and Gallegos and Alex Reyes already uh, thrown really hard. Although it's always important to contextualize velocity. Like yesterday I saw like everybody was super jazzed about Alex Reyes' velocity. He's already throwing like he's already averaging like 96.5 or whatever it is. Like people were really jazzed about that. But then you look at what his velocity was last year and he averaged 97, you know, plus. So you always got to contextualize and look at the player as an individual and kind of see where, where on their range of velocities it lies. But um, so with, with Martinez, I haven't really been grabbing him just because of the injury concerns and maybe the volume concerns, but he could definitely be very good. Just, you know, who knows? Um, Again, I don't think he'll strike out a ton of guys, but he'll be, you know, decent ERA, you know, maybe a little bit higher whip. So I'd rather have Mikolas in that particular instance. Spencer Turnbull is really interesting. I mean, I was into Spencer Turnbull heading into last year. It's And towards the end of, of, of uh, 2020, he actually improved, you know, pretty dramatically. Um, he's got a nice little uh, repertoire. And, and, you know, the thing for me is he just seems insistent on throwing his sinker. 
you know, at, at different times, it's just not a good pitch for him. Um, but let me just uh, get this up. So if it's you look, it's a horrific at, pitch. Yeah, it's a horrific pitch. If you look at his four, his uh, last five games, rolling average graphs. So you know, his Z contact was down at eighty two point two percent. So better than league average. Um, his O swing jumped up to 28.2%, which we always like to see, you know, because especially with a guy like Turnbull who walks a ton of people, that O swing is really critical in kind of monitoring how those walks are going to be. It got all down all the way to 18.4% over a five game span in the middle of last season, which is atrocious. His K rate was up, you know, round league average 22.3 walk rate was down around 9.8 swing strike rate was up to 12.9%. So he's getting there. He's showing flashes. He's showing glimpses. He's pitching in the AL Central. The only team that really worries me offensively there is the White Sox. And obviously, they're going to play a lot more teams. So you have to be cognizant of that. The, the ALDH, you know, no, no NLDH hurts him a little bit. But he's definitely an interesting kind of flyer to take and see if he can put it all together. Because I think he has the pieces. And he's going to have that one year where he puts it all together. It's just a matter of whether it's now or, you know, maybe in a year or two. Yeah, no, there's a lot to like about Spencer Trumple. Like you mentioned, the fastball and the slider are awesome. Sinker sucks. The slider has a 21.9% swinging strike rate. That is ridiculous. He has two pitches with a 32% or higher CSW rate. Then there's the sinker, which I guess he uses it a lot because it gets weak contact and a lot of ground balls. But like if, if it gets elevated at all, it's just destroyed. It doesn't get any swinging strikes. 7.8% swinging strike rate, 9.7% called strike, 17.5%. CSW is just not going to cut it. So sinker is very bad. He throws it almost as often as he does the slider. Throws the fastball a ton. Uh, so he's basically a two-pitch pitcher. If I had it my way, get rid of the sinker. Start using the changeup more. That seems like a pitch he might be able to use. It's still not super effective, but either that or the curveball. Uh, figure out one of those two, and we'll talk. But uh, that fastball-slider combo could be good enough to get him through the lineup a couple times. The third time could be a problem. But uh, I, I like him quite a bit. Miklos is intriguing. Miklos is very intriguing, like you mentioned. If he is healthy, definitely jump on that train. Decent strikeout rates. Can eat up innings. Ratios will be good. He's a, he's a, he's a good pitcher there. And then Martinez, you just don't know what he's going to do. Like he sh- He's not going to the bullpen, as you mentioned, but how healthy, how many innings are they going to give him? Big question mark, because when he, when he pitches, he's great. He's very, very, very good. So that part's tricky, but I like Turnbull a lot here, and it's a guy I'm going to try to get even more shares of. I have him a lot already. I'd like to get a lot more if I could. All right, let's go to listener questions. We have a handful of them tonight, and we will start out with John Wilder. Uh, at John Wilder 84 asks, if you got pocket aces, do you automatically wait two to three rounds before taking another starting pitcher? Also, if you feel comfortable with your innings pitch, quality start ratios, etc., with the aces up top, do you lean more for upside in the middle round? So you've, you've talked about this before. Usually you take like five to seven hitters in a row. Usually, not always. Maybe your relievers in there. But uh, what, do you want to remind John how you approach your pocket aces? Yeah, um, it's a little different this year than it was last year just because there are so many questions about volume. And I do think that there's there's some pretty significant tiers of pitchers. And also there's some pretty good values, I think, at certain pay- places in the draft that maybe I'm going after. So I, generally after the pocket aces, you know, uh, this year I've been grabbing a third starting pitcher before pick 100 just because I really want to – get that guy. Um, I really want to bolster my rotation. I want to have those three really solid anchors. And then I want to be able to speculate on a bunch of guys and then hope that some of those guys land. 
Um, when it comes to upside, yeah, I think later on, I'm definitely looking more for upside. You know, the guys that I like this year, like a Smiley or a Means or a Jomo, like they maybe don't have the track record, but they've shown glimpses with their skills of being able to kind of take it next level recently. And so I, I will I will go with those. But I think the key about pocket aces is, you know, you need to attack hitting in depth, right? You need to be comfortable waiting on your closer. I mean, you don't have to be, right? You don't have to be anything. You can do whatever you want. But in the approach that I have, I'm generally taking a closer later on. Um, I don't know exactly where that's going to be in drafts because it just depends on where where players fall. You know, if the right player falls, like I was in a draft a little bit ago and I grabbed Brad Hand at like pick 125 or something like that because I was like, you know, yeah, Brad Hand's skills haven't been great the last couple of seasons, but he's never been a bad pitcher. He's with the Nationals who are a decent team and he's going to get the save opportunities and he's going to have a pretty long leash there. So I'm willing to kind of take a little bit of a risk there. But um, yeah, I generally want to have those three starting pitchers early on. And then I think generally picks like 100 through 200 are, are primarily um, attacking those hitters in, in depth. And so I think that's the, oftentimes what you'll see the opposite approach is kind of taking one ace and then waiting. And then you see people take like four or five pitchers in a row you know, that's another tack that's taken. I just prefer to get the kind of up top um, volume and then and then maybe try to get um, get lucky in those hitters when, when you attack with volume later on. So that's kind of what I generally do. But generally, like what I'll do is I'll have the two aces, then I'll get my third this year. And then I probably, I'll get like a fourth or fifth, you know, starter around like pick 200. And then I'll wait until later rounds to do that. But that's draft and holds. It's going to be slightly different. Um, in a fab league. And the biggest thing too is, you know, you just got to be cognizant of batting average and stolen bases early when you're drafting and trying to figure out that puzzle and knowing where those might be available later on in drafts that don't hurt you too badly elsewhere, which is easier said than done. So, so much goes into it and draft boards are live. It's fluid, but I think those are some of the key principles that you have to remember. It's not just about taking those two aces and then you're like, I'm good. Peace out. It's just like there's a lot more that goes into it. That's just kind of the, I guess that's what a tagline is or a brand is, is, is when, you know, people kind of latch onto that aspect of it. Yep. It's your brand. Run with it. Um, I know. Just embrace it. I've just got to embrace it every, every, uh, all the time. Um, you know, I just, yeah. So. Uh, Richard Sands asks, I took Tony Disco as my SP8 in the TGFBI Satellite League, what do you think of him in San Francisco? I'm a big fan. I, I think that what's what do they have to lose? Good ballpark. Um, he has some good pitches they can work with. Getting to use the the um, the slider more. He's got a knuckle curve. Maybe they can work on that some more. Uh, I, I like what they can do there with him. Is he going to be elite? Probably not. But could he be a Gossman light potentially? And where you're taking him in the draft, it's free. So I'm I'm a, I'm a fan of it. What say you? Yeah, um, I'm trying to grab his pitch mix here. Slider, fastball, sinker. Those are his main three. They have a knuckle, yeah. knuckle curve and a changeup as well. The slider's always been his best pitch, but it's never quite been a really good pitch. You know, it's like the peak swinging strike rate on it is looks like 17 18%, 19%, you know, but that's in 20, 2014, 2015. Recently, 16.6%, 14.5%. 17.8%. And, and to be honest with you, that's fine. But for a slider, it's, it's not that great. I mean, I think if he can prioritize throwing that pitch, he's up at 95 two. 
Um, but the four seam is just, it's never really been an effective pitch for him. It hasn't really been that good. And he's never really developed that secondary. Um, so I see a lot of work that has to have happen. I mean, just to give you a sense, let me just look at Gaussman just so that we can kind of pick, compare. I want to say Gaussman splitter has always had a well above 20% swinging strike rate. Um, let me just check really quickly. His swinging strike rate on his, yeah, so 26.3% last year on Gaussman splitter, 22.7 in 2019, 20.7 in 2018, 21.8 in 2017. So it's always been a plus 20% swinging strike rate by a decent margin type of pitch. And so I don't think Tony Disco necessarily has that. Um, and even though he's had the velocity uptick into the into 95.4, the four seam still hasn't been a super effective pitch for him on a swinging strike rate basis. So I don't necessarily see it, which is not to say that it can't happen. Right. But all the things that you'd want to see have maybe already happened to Tony Disco, like the velocity increase, but I still don't see the, the effectiveness necessarily where he may benefit though, you know, is he's going to be pitching, you know, in whatever it's called now in San Francisco. Uh, it's going to become a significant pitchers park now again, Oracle, right? It's called Oracle. Right? Yeah, Oracle. Is it the same yep. thing that the arena that the Golden State Warriors have? They used to. Now they have the Chase Center. It's called the Chase Center. Okay. Um, always named after banks, all these places. Yep. yep. Um, so Golden One or whatever. Yep. I'm excited to see a Kings game there, even though they lose like, like <laughs> you wouldn't believe. But yeah, for Tony Disco. So, I mean, yeah, it could work out. Is he like a super fly ball pitcher? Um, I don't think so. I just got. I clicked on. I, that I, think, I would assume he would be just because he's forcing fastball slider. No uh, ground ball forty, almost forty one percent sinker, forty seven percent slider. His uh, f- fastball only a fifteen percent ground ball, but only high fly balls thirteen percent of the time, or low fly balls and pop ups thirty five percent pop up on the fastball. So I mean, essentially, what I would say is I think he could be effective. I think how he would be effective. Um, would be he's in, you know, in, in, in the giant stadium and he moves, he continues to move in the direction that he has moved, which is more into a fly ball pitcher than a ground ball pitcher. His ground ball rate was at a career low, at least since 2014, 38.9% last year. Um, he had a really high line drive rate, but that will stabilize and that will go towards the fly balls if he maintains the same pitch mix. So maybe he can be effective in that, but I don't necessarily see him being able to strike out uh, a ton of guys. Um, either so I think it's limited ceiling for me in disco but I could be absolutely wrong yeah and then looking at like all his x stats and everything deserve barrels he uh there's a lot of positive regression looking at his numbers so I'm gonna hold out hope the slider has been very effective and I think uh, the ballpark change and just this this the way the Giants know how to work with these pitchers I think there's a lot to like there a, a reason why he wanted to come following Gaspin's steps is uh, what it sounds like to me from what I've heard so that's what I'd uh I like to give him a chance, and you're gonna be getting him at pick like 355, so it's not costing you anything. So I'll, I'm willing to take that chance. And, he, and in uh, the TGFBI satellite, that's a it's not it's 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 like a 50 round, but there's still fab involved. It's a weird setup they got going on in that one. So it's worth a gamble to me. And then also Richard asks in a with a seven man bench, no IL and fab, so NFPC bench. Do you try to have a backup for every position? I say no. You just you just kind of take the best bench, you turn and burn. What about you? Um, repeat the question. I was really distracted because I, I TGFBI, somebody just timed out and made a pick in my league. 
<laughs> Imagine timing out and getting Brandon Woodruff at pick 40. Wow, that doesn't suck. Can we just that's that, that's pretty lucky. It's painful. Pretty lucky. Painfully lucky. Um sorry, the, the question was repeat it to me. I was um I, with a seven-man bench, no IL and fab. Do you try to have backups for each position? Um, I try. I try to do that. I think that's why some position flexibility guys at the end are important, but you got to think about it in terms of your whole roster, right? Like if you, you know, if you have guys that you can move around that are in your starting lineup, then you don't necessarily have to have a guy at every position, right? Because you can, you can mix and match. So I try to have that as much as possible, especially in COVID times. Right. And so, you know, could you do that with two guys, two guys, maybe, could you do that with three guys, maybe, but but it's not something that I put above, like, you know, if there's a significant advantage, I feel like I'm gaining and picking up other players, then I'll, I'll take a risk and do that. And you just hope that you don't have to eat a bunch of zeros. Uh, Nathan Coleman asks, fellas, uh, the last few episodes have been absolute bangers. Um, my AL only auction Roto League has a wins quality start category where each quality start win is worth one point. Are there any sub $10 pitchers you like? Well, the short answer, I don't know about $10 because especially in your league, I don't know what the valuations are going to be. Um, I don't have my, I don't have my valuations up. Um, I mean, the, the short answer is probably no, just because, I mean, if you look at quality starts, if you look at the, you look at the graph of quality starts and the way it drops off, the drop off is absolutely insane. Like the aces will get you 20 plus quality starts. And then you go from like 20 plus and there's a smattering of like 18, 17, 16. And then it like drops all the way down to 10. And then there's like, you know, and so it's just really hard. And, and so I think the things, instead of naming individual pitchers, cause we've covered a lot of guys and it's a unique scoring setting. What you want to be looking for is innings pitched at that point in time, right? Is look for guys that you feel like are going to go six innings and be decent. You know, I mean, maybe we covered some guys, some of these, um, some of these guys that don't necessarily get strikeouts, you know, like a Zach Davies or a Kwang Young Kim, but generate weak contact, don't walk players. So they tend to have shorter innings. You know, they can go a little bit deeper into games. Those are the types of guys that I would really be focusing on in that type of a league because it is a huge boon, but I, I would really be focusing on aces early on if at all possible. And I know it's just cliche of me to say that at this point, because I say that about every league setting, but especially in a league setting like that, whereas you essentially get to double count really good starts. It seems like a, seems like a, a good strategy to have. So that's what I would say is just look at innings pitched, look, look at projections for innings pitched and try to identify guys that you maybe think have a little bit of skill that they can, you know, turn into uh, where they can overperform maybe where they where people are expecting them to go based on them being $10 or cheaper. Yeah. And um, one thing you're going to have to realize real quick, if you're talking below $10 in an AL only league, most of these guys aren't uh, the best of the best to begin with. So like, I just pulled out the auction calculator. I added quality starts. It's like, this probably is not a perfect formula, of course, but just for uh, S's and giggles, I, I just looked at it. And um, so pitchers in an AL only league under 10 bucks, like Michael Pineda's there. He goes innings, but not a big strikeout guy. But he'll he'll give you innings. Uh, he's intriguing. You say Kikuchi could be another guy to take a peek at, but 
you know, most of these guys we talked about, but they're not like reliable. So it's, it's real tricky. So it goes back to what Toby was saying, probably get guys early. Like J.A. Happ could be one that could be okay. But a lot of these guys, it's youngsters like Scoobal and you got Keller. Uh, you got uh, Tyon, who's questionable, Justice Sheffield, Javier. It's not pretty. So you're going to want to load up early, kind of like Toby was saying. All right. The next question we have here from Marshall Witzberger. He needs five keepers. Head-to-head Roto. I think you answered this form on Twitter. I did. I didn't realize it was a question for the pod. Okay, then we're good. We're good. You nailed it. Um, Zach Nelson asks, why on earth is Marco Gonzalez going in the 160s? Because according to um, his old general manager or whatever, he's boring. But uh, no, I don't know. He's not flashy, but he's darn good. I, I have no complaints with him. What about you? Yeah, I actually really like Marco Gonzalez a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, he doesn't necessarily have the swinging strike rate stuff, but his CSW stuff is good. He's been improving. He doesn't walk guys at all. Very low walk rate. You know, really nice. Um, I think he'll be a really nice whip asset. You know, 122, 131, and 0.95 this year. He obviously had the lower Babbitt, but when you look at a lot of the control metrics, like the shadow percentage that you mentioned, those things that make guys like Zach, uh, like, um, Kyle Hendricks effective. Gonzalez seems to have some of those traits and he's a guy who has improved, you know, I think every single year that he's pitched and from a volume perspective, I mean, there was a good, there was an interesting conversation happening today on Twitter that, you know, uh, Rob Silver had tweeted out about Marco Gonzalez and his projections and his projected innings pitched and being in the six man rotation. And there's a lot to consider in terms of that, but I think on a per you know, on a per start basis, I think he's going to be one of the league leaders in terms of the innings pitches that he, that he goes. Um, I feel like he was last year as well, right? He had 11 starts and almost 70, almost 70 innings. And that's why he had so many wins is because he was able to go uh, deep into games. If you look at him too, he's a high fly ball pitcher, you know, which in the stadiums that he plays in is, is a pretty good thing to be. Um, he should be helped by the dead end ball as well because he's a fly ball pitcher. And if you look at him, he actually maintains pretty low um, barrel rates, I want to say. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe he has historically. Yeah, so he's got, for his career, he has a 5.5% barrel rate. It was a little higher last year at 8.4%. Um, but, um, uh, you know, that's always nice, right? That's one of the few batted ball metrics that does seem to be at least slightly predictive year to year for pitchers, um, barrel metrics, but exit velocity, you know, low, the launch angle was high, but he generates a lot of pop-ups. I want to say, um, I feel like I, I looked at that. So anyways, I, I don't mind him at all. Yes. The strikeouts are going to be lower. I think than most guys, but you may actually be a little bit surprised, um, because he's able to generate a lot of, um, of called strikes. So the CSW is better than that swinging strike rate is. And again, he seems to improve as a pitcher as he goes. So I like a lot of what I have, um, like what I see in um, in Marco Gonzalez. So I actually don't mind uh, drafting him at all. I've drafted him actually a few times in probably my last five drafts. I've drafted him three times, I think, as my SP4 or SP5. Yeah, no, I, I got no problem with him either. I got 51% shadow on the sinker, 51.5% on the cutter, 47% on the changeups. Yeah, he lives on the edges. And that helps him with a 26 25.9, 17.2% called swinging strike rate or called strike rates on those, which you mentioned gives him the CSWs that are very, very attractive. So he's a very good pitcher. And um, 
nothing nothing wrong with what he's doing. He's not flashy by any means, but he's very, very effective. That's why he's got the rates, the strikeout rates he has, limits the contact, 32%, 32.7, 35.3% hard contact. That's really not bad compared to a lot of the other pitchers we looked at. Um, so, yeah, that, that plays pretty darn well. Like you said, tons of pop-ups, 27.5, 25.3, 25 25.9% 25 pop-up rates on his three main pitches. So um, that helps out a ton as well. Even the max X of those are like 106 to 108, which for most pitchers, that's actually not horrible. So you can live with that. Yeah, just a lot to like. The more and more you kind of look at them, um, it, it's hard not to enjoy the boringness that is Marco Gonzalez. And he put on Twitter today, he's about to be a girl dad. So uh, more power to him. He's there you gonna, go. He's going to have a fun year. Um, our buddy, Cody Mack at Comac Do, he says, I'm back with the evolution of the Nice to have you back, Cody. Yes, you are back with the evolution of the starting pitcher role, less innings, openers, etc. Is it now a must-have to seek late-round value in followers, loogies? Some of the middle relief elites have racked up more wins than DeGrom the last three seasons. Um, that's one reason. I, I don't think it's a must, but that's why I, I love guys like Freddie Peralta and a, f- a few other, others. That's why Gonsolin is intriguing because he's going to be that guy uh, for the Dodgers for a little bit until he starts, but I wouldn't say it's a must. Yeah, I don't necessarily think it's a must. I mean, the thing is, I think it's really hard to know who those guys are going to be, right? Like, that's one of the challenges is that before the season is knowing who exactly is going to fill that role. You may have a pretty good idea, but what you rely on there is, you know, he's got that it's got to be the first pitcher coming in to relieve, you know? Um, you never know what the matchup is going to be. So let's say it's a lefty, you know, like I like Brent Suter a lot for the Brewers, right? But you know, maybe it's a right-handed hitter who's up. And so, or it's a series of right-handed hitters. And so the Brewers bring in a Preddy Peralta instead of a Brent Suter, you know, to fill that role with the one or two guys that they have that aren't necessarily going five innings. So I think it's much more difficult to draft them. And it's kind of like, it's kind of like drafting a reliever who's not closing. It's kind of like, I'll pick those guys up in season as I see them happening. I don't think you necessarily have to draft them because oftentimes they aren't guys who are drafted. They're guys who kind of come out of nowhere um, for whatever reason. So that's what I would say. Don't draft them. I'd say pick them up in season when the roles become a little bit clearer and you have a better sense of, of where they are. Or if you, if you have an inkling on somebody like a Brent Suter and you want to make him your 30th round pick or something like that, yeah. um, you know, in a 15 team or something, then, then have at it. And then he also wants to know what um, beard conditioner do you recommend? Well, uh, Cody, it's a great question. Um, unfortunately, this podcast is not sponsored by any uh, beard conditioner um, companies. If anybody's out there who works for a beard conditioning company, I'd be happy to use your product and market it here on this podcast. But um, I'm just kidding. Uh, I use, I think it's called Viking. You know, it's fine. It works. Uh, I think it's organic, which is great. Um, but yeah, that's, that's it. I think you can use anyone. I, I, I um but I enjoy it, but I'm sure there's ones out there that are better too. So, And then Richard Sands came back with another question, our last one of the night. Toby, do you ever feel like you started a trend that you might want to back away from since everyone is doing pocket aces now? No true advantage if most all the draft room also has two starting pitchers in the first two to three rounds. I can see this conventional wisdom going out the window next season. Every day of my life, Richard. Every day of my life, I think about going a different direction. Um, yes and no. I mean, I think the, the, the point you make, Richard, is a really good one. And, and that's one of the reasons why 
I have oftentimes found myself like if I draft early on in a draft, actually not going with the pocket aces because starting pitching is already getting pushed up really high. And I don't, I'm not necessarily a fan of some of the guys who are going around the two, three turn, at least where they're going compared to the hitters. And so, um, so I just think you need to be, you need to be flexible. You also like, for me, it's a strategy. I mean, getting the pocket aces is a strategy that I feel really comfortable with personally drafting. Um, you know, for whatever reason, maybe because I feel better about getting hitter bargains later on. And I feel like pitchers are a little bit hit more hit and miss, you know, later on. I, I still feel pretty good about my ability to get those pitchers, you know, later on in drafts. But who knows that if those two pocket aces are going to be are going to be great each year, it's actually unlikely that both of them are going to be terrific. And in, in any one given year, that actually hasn't been my experience, which is why I think having two of them is is helpful to have. So it's really a strategy. I don't think it works for everybody. I don't think it works for every draft. I don't think it works for every year. Um, I'm going to use it less this year probably than I have in previous seasons. Um, but I still think that it works because the thing is when, when everybody pushes pitching up, then getting the two, two of the better pitchers when there's kind of an inflated value that some of them are carrying, you know, it remains important. And if everybody's pushing, starting pitching up, then something has to drop. And that ends up being hitting. And then I have more hitters to choose from uh, later on. So either way it works out, I think it generally works. But, you know, I think, yeah, you want to be flexible. You don't want to necessarily be rigid and box yourself in anything, which hopefully I'm not doing. But that is my preferred drafting strategy. And even though whenever I try to get away from it, I just like squirm because I'm like, God, it just feels so uncomfortable. Um, So that's maybe that's more a thing for yeah. <laughs> now it's tough with the the landscape to not get at least one if not two of those top pitchers because it gets ugly very ugly oh and that's what i'm talking about i mean look at bubba's yeah. track yeah bubba with pocket aces and they're beautiful he went oh, I'm so over i'm over the moon with those two aces Gilio and, Nola. and Nola. Nola. Yeah, yeah i got them that's what i got in tower wars is my first yeah. two so i'm so happy nola and you're like, oh, man, Bubba, you're not going to be able to get hitting. Well, guess what? Bubba comes around and he drafts Rafael Devers, who last year was going towards the back end of the second round, right? And who mm-hmm. smashed in September last year. So everybody's like, oh, Bubba, you're not going to have enough offense. And then all of a sudden you just drafted a second rounder from last year. So it's kind of like you drafted only one starting pitcher in the first round, but you got Devers in the second round because that's really where he maybe should be going. And you got him and then you got JT Real Muto as your fourth pick. And JT Real Muto is a top 25 player overall if you look at valuations and you don't do this like market correction thing. (laughs) And so you just got two top 25 players plus two pocket aces. You're clearly going on to win your TGFBI league. I mean, why not do it? Why not do it? Uh, I I agree. Look at co-host and hype man, Toby. He just just does it all over there. I mean, you're going to smash it around – I mean, you're picking at like 74 and 77. Like, I mean, you're going to be rolling in. You're going to be rolling in the hitting at that point in time, right? It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing, especially when I found out where I was picking on Friday and I tweeted out, I hope League 11 lets my favorite starting pitcher drop to me. And they let my favorite starting pitcher drop to me. I was like, you guys are just because I knew the big three wouldn't be there. I wasn't that foolish. I said, OK, leave my SP4, leave him alone. And he just fell. And I was I was nervous because the top three were gone in the first six picks. And so I'm sitting there with eight picks to go going, oh, there's no way. 
there's not a chance. And then, yep, no other no picture was taken until then. I then we started to run. Ryan Bloomfield's not happy, but uh, yeah. is what it is. Um, but yeah, it's fun. It's fun, like you said, Towers, um, TGFBI, all rocking and rolling. What are your final thoughts for the show this evening? Uh, one thing I know some people had asked about Woodruff because we didn't cover Woodruff in our first show. Um, I'm a fan of Woodruff. I like him a lot. Um, whip, uh, was low. Whip is low. Doesn't walk guys, strikes guys out. I'm a little bit worried like I am with a lot of the guys in the NL central about the sustainability of the swinging strike rate on their fastballs, you know, but again, should be a really nice schedule that he gets against NL central opponents that are trying to lose. Um, and so I think, I think he's really good. I have no problem get drafting in him in the middle of the second round where he's kind of been going. I know he had a little bit of like back inflammation today. Maybe that's why he dropped in some drafts, but I saw him going late. I mean, 40 in my round, my draft 34 and other ones. I'd, I'd be fine drafting him as, you know, my second starting pitcher, even my first starting pitcher in the middle of the second round. So. Yeah, no, I, I'm a, I'm a big Woodruff fan. I've been getting them. If I, if I draft early, I get him on like that two, three turn, usually my third pick. And as like my second starting pitcher, I've been a big fan of that. Just keep an eye out. Uh, his start got pushed back because of back stiffness already. So I hate back injuries. Like most of these injuries right now, like, you know, they say Bogarts has a shoulder. A lot of stuff so knickknacky right now. I'm not too worried about it. Backs always concern me, so um, I'm, I, I'd keep. I'd rather say he has a cold. I know it's co- I know it's COVID right now, and you. That's a sketchy situation as well. They probably make him go to a protocol and not stay around the team for like two weeks. But I the back thing. Like, tell me his pinky finger got. Tell me he had Spencer Torkelson and he cut his hand using a a can opener, like something like that. But yeah, oh man. That, that's the thing we forgot about spring training. We're like, oh, we get to see the velocity readings. We get to see them yeah. play. And then you're like, oh, every day there's minor injury news yeah. and like recency bias and just fear grabs hold of you. And you're like, can I, can I draft Xander Bogarts like yeah. at the end of the second round now? Like, am, can I, yeah. is that okay? Like, you know, because the, and that one was a little sketchy. They were saying like, they did an MRI and it was fine and they think he should be ready for opening day. And you're like, when you say you think he should be ready, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, going to be close or yeah. is it like, Oh yeah, he should be fine for, you know, he should be ready for opening day. Like you want to like see them say that and like see the type of, you know, like nuance in their voice as they say that, whether that's like a, uh, Oh yeah, it's, it's not a problem at all. Or it's like, Oh yeah, he should be ready. And you're like, yeah. Is he? No, yeah, there's, a, there's a handful of them. Like uh, Abreu is supposed to finally make his debut in a couple of days. But then you have guys like Wilson Ramos and Austin Meadows crushing baseballs. And you, it, it's fun. We have baseball back, but just uh, sit back and relax a little bit, see what happens. Uh, a lot of iffy pitchers are out there, some weird lineups. Just enjoy it for what it is for now. We'll see where it goes here in a, another week or two. For but, sure. Uh, it's definitely fun. But everybody, uh, check out Toby on Twitter at BatFlipCrazy. I'm on Twitter at BDNTrick Thursday, round two, podcast tournament. Do what you want to do. If you like us, vote for us. If not, vote for the competition. I'm good either way. There you go. You're supposed to vote for the podcast you like the most. Exactly. I hope you like our podcast. I hope you vote for it. If you like the other – I mean, we're going up against Enrico Palazzo podcast. Oh, he's and got more, way more energy than I got. He does. And also, I mean, Michael's great. Like, we just yeah. – we're on there. It's an awesome podcast. You all should listen to it. It's phenomenal. Listen to them, whichever one you enjoy most, vote for. 
It's got two L, two L's and two Z's. So go check it out. I love, I love that. I love how. Yeah, it yeah. me too. Um, but uh, yeah, so check that out. All the good stuff. Follow us on Twitter. We'll be back with you guys next week with. Uh, well, we'll talk about it. Maybe some strategy. Some, I don't know. Because we still really strategy mailbag, whatever. Yeah, we'll figure something out. The season's just a few weeks away. So you guys have a good one. Episode seventy-three in the books. Catch you guys later. That is going to wrap us up for episode 169 of the Batflip Crazy podcast. Thank you so much for listening. A lot of fun talking about uh, starting pitchers again. Uh, pitching is obviously going to be a really critical part of leagues this year. So many outstanding questions about it. Uh, so it should be a lot of fun. Uh, next week, we'll probably be bringing a mailbag slash strategy uh, section, I think. Not that we don't talk about strategy regularly, but maybe focusing and honing in on that uh, a little bit more. Um, we also have our closer preview review to do. I think we're going to do that maybe a little closer to the season once we have a little bit more information uh, than we have right now, maybe a couple weeks into camp. So look for those couple episodes. We'll be back next Tuesday at, during our usual day and time. We, we had to uh, mix it around because of uh, the tout draft that uh, Bubba has, which is really awesome that um, he's in tout as well this year. Um, so best of luck with all of your fantasy baseball research, all your drafts. Take care and be kind to one another.